Our sermon today is taken from John 21, verses 15 to 25. This is the word of God. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was, going, he was to glorify God, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved and following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that you remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Thus says the Lord. Thank you, Indita. Friends, a while ago we started the first chapter in our series, the book of John, and now, about a year and a half, we're at the last chapter, chapter 21. So this will be our last sermon through the series uh, uh, in the book of John, and I hope it's been as much of a blessing to you as it has been to Gray and I as, and Elias and as we've preached uh, these passages. So um, uh, the next series that we're going to do is a shorter series that we're calling The Priesthood of All Believers. That's just, uh, uh, we're going to pick and choose passages in the Bible that encourage us uh, and inform us that the work of ministry is not just supposed to be done by the professionals, uh, full-time staff at church, but it's meant to be done by every Christian. So we'll take passages that speak about that maybe three or four weeks, and then after that, we're going to jump into our next big series through the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. It's wisdom literature. We haven't really talked about that before, so I'm excited to kind of jump into that. All right? So let's dive in in our last passage uh, in the book of John. And at, at this point, chapter 21, John has already written 20 whole chapters about the love that God has for his people, mainly seen in who Jesus is, right? If you, if you remember, throughout the whole book, even he started off in chapter 1, G John has claimed Jesus to be God himself, who because of his love for his people, decided to humbly put on flesh, to be born as one of us. Why? So that he can sacrificially die the death that we deserve for our sins on the cross to pay for our mistakes and our rebellion and to save us unto himself. That's the gospel that John's proclaimed for 20 whole chapters. And now in chapter 21, John records Jesus reversing the question. Jesus here is asking Peter, is asking us, 
now that I've shown you how I love you, do you love me? And if, in fact, you do love Jesus, our passage points out that you'll find yourself increasingly becoming a gospel servant who participates in his gospel work to spread this good news of the gospel to all peoples, uh, which is what Peter will eventually become. Um, Now, I want to point out the progression that Peter experienced as a servant of Christ. Uh, So, one, Peter is a humbled gospel servant. Peter is a stubborn gospel servant. And Peter is a beloved gospel servant. We see these things in our passage today. A humbled gospel servant, a stubborn gospel servant, and a beloved gospel servant. Let's, let's dive right into it. Point one, a humbled gospel servant. So let's remember the context here. After Jesus Christ died on the cross and was resurrected, the resurrected Jesus that we saw last week in verses 1 to 14 appears to his disciples who were fishing at the Sea of Tiberias. He then invited his disciples, who were shocked but full of joy, to have a meal with him, right? And John here specifically mentions that the meal was done over a charcoal fire at the shore of the Sea of Tiberias. Now, our passage today, verse 15, continues in the story of what happened after that meal. And we see here that Jesus narrows into a dialogue specifically with Peter. Verse 15, when they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? Now, there's a lot more to this question than what first meets the eye. Let's think about the context again. Jesus here is addressing Peter over a charcoal fire. Now, remember, when was the last time we saw Peter standing over a charcoal fire? In John chapter 18, before Jesus was crucified, what did Peter do over this charcoal fire? He denied Jesus three times. Remember when Jesus was being interrogated by the Pharisees before he was being crucified, Peter, who was nearby, was asked by by someone there that if he knew Jesus, if he knew this guy that was going to be crucified three times. And in order to save himself, Peter betrayed and denied to know Jesus at all, all three times. That's what happened the last time we saw Peter standing over a charcoal fire. And now the resurrected Jesus appears to Peter after the cross and invites him to have a meal over, out of all things, a charcoal fire. Talk about an awkward family meal. I don't want to psychoanalyze Peter here, but I don't think it's too far-fetched to assume that he was thinking something like this. He just had to use charcoal, didn't he? (laughs) He couldn't have used wood. What's he trying to say? Does he know that I did it? Does he know that I denied him? And as if there is any question of whether or not Jesus knew, Jesus makes it clear here in in his comment in verse 15 that he does know Peter denied him. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Let's talk about what Jesus meant by more than these. More than what? Knowing what Jesus means here is going to reveal to us the fact that Jesus did know about Peter's denial. If you remember throughout the book of John, Peter has always fancied himself to be a committed follower of Christ, right? He, he'd walk around with his chest pumped up a little bit with utter confidence that he would never deny Jesus. You go to John chapter 6, verse 68. After a lot of uh, the disciples left Jesus, Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go as well? So 12 people remained, and Jesus said, do you want to go as well? Who answered? Simon Peter. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
very confident there, Peter. And through Peter's words in the past, he would even subtly hint that he loves Jesus more than the other disciples. John 13, verse 37, when Jesus subtly implied that he's going to die on the cross in the future, Simon Peter again said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, listen, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. <laughs> you hear the self-confidence there Peter had? And notice in John 13, this passage that we just read, uh, Jesus here was addressing all the disciples. But Peter didn't say, we will lay down our lives for you. No, no, no. <laughs> he said, me, I will lay down my life for you. These other average disciples, I, I don't know about them, but I know that I will. <laughs> Friends, behold, vain glory. What you're seeing here is a child who does not yet know himself. Peter is making claims and promises he really thought he could keep. But when push comes to shove, at Jesus' most crucial hour, this self-confident Peter ended up denying him three times. So back to our passage here. Jesus asks Peter, who fancies himself as the most committed follower, over and above these other average disciples, do you love me more than these? In other words, do you really love me more than these other disciples here? You've been so confident this whole time, Peter, right? How's your self-confidence doing now? Do you still dare claim that you are my most committed disciple? Dare you say that over this charcoal fire here? Look at how Peter responds. Note that he does not deny that he loves Jesus because he truly does love Jesus, but he answered it in a much more humble way. He didn't say, yes, Lord, I do love you more than these other average disciples. I, I will never deny you, no. He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I know I've messed up. I know I chose my reputation and my comfort and my security over you. But I love you. I really do. Maybe as not as, 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 not as much as I claim to, but I really do love you. You know that, don't you? And then Jesus asks the same questions again, verses 16 and 17, the second and the third time. And this threefold question form in the way Jesus addresses Peter makes it more explicit that Jesus here is referring to Peter's threefold denial over a charcoal fire in the past. And all three times, Peter affirms his love for Christ, but not as a self-confident, naive child, pumping his chest, ignorant of the depth of his own sin. He answers Jesus now, as a weathered and humbled man who's gone through enough of life to realize that he is not the man he thought he was. You ever been there before? You ever find yourself in a place where there's just, there's no escaping your sin? There's no more smokescreen to hide behind. You have no excuses left. There's no scapegoats to blame. You messed up. It's known to others. It's known to your friends and your family. And Jesus here is addressing Peter's sin in front of the other disciples. It can't be undone. The image you have in your community has been ruined forever. It'll never be the same. And perhaps what's most painstaking is that the image you have of yourself will never be the same. Life has simply proven you are not the man or the woman you thought you were. 
And Peter perhaps thought he was done for. He knows he deserves it. He's been utterly cast down to the dust. But friends, to this withered man, Jesus did not say, away with you. He said the most unexpected thing. He said, I want to use you. Where do we see that? At the end of each sentence, Jesus said to this humiliated and broken individual, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus reinstituted Peter to do gospel work of feeding God's people with the message of the cross. Jesus chose the Peter that was at his lowest. I mean, he could have waited a few months, (laughs) you know? He could have waited and let Peter pick himself back up first, shake off the cobwebs, Let the pains of failure kind of reside a bit. He could have let Peter get some self-confidence back again and then come to Peter and say, I want to use you for my gospel work. But Jesus did not wait until Peter was feeling better. Jesus wanted Peter at his lowest. Jesus wanted Peter at his meekest. Jesus wanted Peter at his most humbled state. Why? Because the greatest gospel proclaimer is not the one who feels most competent. The greatest gospel proclaimer is not the one who thinks he's able. The greatest gospel proclaimer is the one who realizes the depths of their sins and is currently tasting the immensity of God's mercy. Jesus looks for withered people who is not blinded by vainglory and who has tasted the cup of his mercy. That's the person Jesus enlists into his mission. It's as if Jesus sat back, allowed Peter to jump up and down and shout, saying, look, look, Jesus, look at how committed I am to you. Look at all I've I've done for you. Look at all my accomplishments. I'll follow you anywhere, Jesus. I'll do this for you. I'll do that for you. Jesus allowed Peter to huff and puff, and then he let the reality of life and the reality of his own sin to shatter his view of self. And then at this point, Jesus came back to Peter and said, Peter, now that you're done trying to impress me, are you ready to actually start living for me? Peter, now that you're done trying to impress me, are you actually ready to start loving me? (laughs) See, vanity is sneaky. Wanting to, to serve and love God and trying to impress God externally may look the same, you see. Whatever gospel work Jesus has called you to, whether that's joining and contributing at a Bible study or a community group, or talking to someone about the gospel at work, or reminding a fellow believer of their identity in Christ, or counseling someone with gospel truth, or leading your kids spiritually, or if you're an elder or pastor, weekly preaching in and out every Sunday, or if you're reading liturgy in a liturgy team up here, music team, whatever you're doing to contribute to feeding Jesus' sheep with the gospel message, if you're doing it to impress him, you're really not doing it for him, are you? You're doing it for yourself. You want to look impressive to God. You're on the stage. (laughs) Friends, God is not looking for performers to impress him. He wants worshipers that love him. You know how tiring it is to view your Christian walks as a never-ending acrobatic act to impress God? You've experienced how tiring that is. It's vain and it's empty and it's meaningless. Macbeth 
describes the man immersed in vain glory as a man whose life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that jumps and shouts upon the mere hour he has on the stage called Earth, and then is heard of no more. It's a tale told by a fool, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And that's not what you really want anyways. It's not. Look, I know we think what we want is to feel impressive. We think what we want is to be impressive. We believe that, but Jesus here is saying what you want is not to be impressive. What you want is to love. What are the most meaningful stories to us? What's the plot line that touches all of our hearts? It was mid-July when Jimmy was born. And from day one, his goal was to impress as many people as possible. He did it. Well done, Jimmy. The end. <laughs> that's meaningless. That is not, that's not what we want. That's not the narrative we look for. It's empty and vain, and we know it. What do you want to see happen, whether it's to others on a screen or to you in real life? It's not to be impressive, but it's to find a love worth sacrificing for. To see an old Celtic hero scream out freedom as his last breath was taken away by his captors. To see man visit his wife who has amnesia in a nursing home for 30 years, just to remind her every day that he is her husband and that he loves her, only to be forgotten again by her the next day. I was gonna quote the end of Titanic, but my cheese has its limits. <laughs> That's what Jesus is calling Peter to do. Stop trying to impress me. That does not glorify me, nor is not, that's not what your heart wants. What you want is to love me so much to where you'd find me to be more precious than all this world has to offer. And that's what verse 18 is all about. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. It's Confusing, what is Jesus saying there? We look in verse 19, uh, Jesus ex is explaining that here in verse 18, I'm describing Peter how you're gonna die. Peter is gonna be crucified. That's what being forced to stretch out your hands means. And we know from historical records, from historians like Tertullian, uh, Eusebius, and Clement of Rome, Peter did die for preaching the gospel around 30 years after the gospel of John had written, crucified by, we think, was Nero, a cruel emperor who hated Christians. That's what's gonna make you persevere in glorifying God through your life in a long-term gospel service, your love for him. Jesus didn't say, Peter, you wanna impress me? Feed my sheep, no. He said, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep. But you can't love God if you're worried about impressing him. <laughs> if you're all worried about looking good to, 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 to show off to him all the time. So Jesus had to break Peter Jesus had to let Peter see his own sin to sober him up and then show him mercy. Then perhaps, then perhaps Peter might stop living for vain glory and actually start living for God and God's glory. But that wasn't at all the case. Peter, like a lot of us, grows very slowly. Let's go to our second point, a stubborn gospel servant. So the scene switches here in verse 20. It seemed that Jesus and Peter got up from the charcoal fire meal and started walking down the beach. And you know, after all this, you'd think Peter would be absolutely captivated by Jesus' love, right? He's experienced mercy and embrace, and, and, and he, he's experienced God's love for him, and, and 
you'd think he'd start to love God and, and not think about himself. But what's the first thing we see Peter doing here after receiving God's mercy in verse 20? Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? He's talking about John. So John did that in the Last Supper. Um, uh, Peter looked back at John in verse 21 and said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? The first thing Peter does after receiving a lesson on vanity and on vainglory is to compare himself with someone else. You see how realistic the Bible is? Isn't it so similar with the painstaking truth about our own lives? Just like us, Peter's growth was very slow. His desire for vain glory has rooted itself so deeply in his heart, it was not a quick fix. You know the saying that when you see smoke, you'll see fire. When you see a need to compare yourself with others, you'll find vanity. If vanity says, I want to feel impressive, comparison is just vanity poking itself out. Vanity says, I want to be impressive. Comparison is saying, I want to be more impressive than that guy. Vanity and comparison goes hand in hand. They're both dangerous. See, if in point one we saw that vanity prohibits you from loving God because you're more concerned about impressing him than loving him, comparison prohibits you from loving others because you're more concerned about beating them than loving them. You can't love others when you're trying to beat everyone all the time. That's why Jesus answered here in verse 22. If it's my will that he remains till I come, what is that to you? You, follow me. In short, Jesus told Peter, that's none of your business. What happens to John? You, run your race. And you know, vanity is one of those elusive addictions. I recently was sent an article that talks about Harriet Brown's book, uh, Brave Girl Eating, that deals with eating disorders. And she touches a lot on anorexia and body dysmorphia. Body dysmorphia is when you're, you, you have anorexia and you, um, uh, uh, you throw up after meals to lose weight. Uh, and, and, but when you look, and you're really skinny, but when you look at a mirror, you don't see a skinny person. You see a big person. That's body dysmorphia. You don't see yourself in the mirror as accurately as, as, as you are. And in this book, Harry Brown talks about a researcher that invited two women struggling with anorexia, both weighed 70 pounds. 70 pounds is 31 kilograms. Two women weighing 31 kilograms. The first woman said that although, she, although the scale says 31 kilograms, when she looks at a mirror, she feels like she looks fat. So what the researcher did is to tell the first woman to look at the other woman who was at the same height, 30, also 31 kilograms, and the first woman said that the other lady, and I quote, looks terrible, as if she was going to die. And then the researcher pointed out to the first lady that they're both actually the same weight. She too is 31 kilograms. And, and the first woman was absolutely shocked. She couldn't believe it. The article says, again I quote, she had no answer as to why she perceived herself as fat in the mirror, but saw the other lady as starved. Body dysmorphia is confusing. You can't, you can't really explain why you don't see yourself as you are when you look into a mirror, but yet you see others as they are. Vanity, I think, maybe, can be described kind of in a similar way. Vanity can almost be described as character dysmorphia. You look at a mirror, and you don't see yourself as vain. <laughs> vain people will never think that they struggle with vanity, right? 
They'll, see, they'll seem fine and healthy in their own eyes. And when someone hints to them that they have vanity and that it's hurting others, they'll call those people crazy. I'm not vain. Yet at the same time, they're usually very quick to observe vanity in other people. And just like the researcher had to do a test to make the anorexic woman here see her anorexia uh, and move toward health, here perhaps are some tests that could reveal vanity in us. One, like Peter, we will be prone to comparison. A vain person is prone to comparison. How do we know that we are prone to comparison? Usually someone who is prone to comparison will mainly, not exhaustively, but mainly, primarily have two categories for people. They'll have pedestal people, and they'll have pit people. But you won't, have, you won't find many people who are equal with you that you walk hand in hand with. What do I mean? You have some people in your life that you find to be up there, right, to be followed and to be exemplified, and you find a lot of people that you find to be down here for whatever reason that needs to get better, but you find very few people in a category that is equal with you and can walk hand in hand with you in true companionship. Because your default in relationship is comparison. They're either better than you or worse than you. Either you want to be more like them or they should get better and be more like you. It's okay to have role models. That's not wrong. It's okay to be honest about other people's shortcomings. That's not wrong. But if that's the majority of your relationships and you almost have no one that you walk equally with, hand in hand, resting uh, uh, in, in, in fellowship, then perhaps the poison of comparison has digged itself deeper into your heart more than you've realized. Another test, uh, like Peter's attitude toward John, is that you'll be discontent with the fate and the giftings of other Christians. When other Christians have giftings that lead them to do more visible kind of ministries, or when someone's faithfulness are acknowledged at church, you'll have a hard time celebrating them. You'll have a hard time being excited for them. You'll be whispering to yourself, what do they have that I don't? Peter and John had two very different ministries and faiths. Peter was more of a public leader in the book of Acts, as we see, who was more authoritative and an orator, a speaker, a public speaker. He died a very public death by being crucified. John lived a quieter life of literature. He wrote the book of John and Revelations, lived a longer life, also persecuted for the gospel, but he died most likely of old age in an abandoned island called Patmos. Jesus is saying, don't worry about it. If someone wants to serve me for another, if, if I want somebody to serve me for another 50 years on earth, but decided to call you home tomorrow, if I want someone to serve in a more public and noticeable way, but have gifted you not for such a visible type of ministry, what is that to you? You follow me. Be faithful to my call for your life. Don't worry about that. It'll prohibit you from loving God because all you're going to think about is how can I impress him? And it's going to prohibit you from loving others because all you're going to think about is how I can beat them. Now, let me just point out one more thing we see in the text. The vanity, the vanity we see in Peter, we see less of in John. Look at verse 23. Apparently, when Jesus told Peter about John's fate and said, if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? We see that sentence of verse 23 was misunderstood by a lot of the other disciples, all the other brothers. They thought that Jesus meant John wasn't going to die until Jesus comes back again, that John will remain alive until Jesus comes back again. That's what they thought Jesus meant, verse 23. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. 
And we know that through church history, there was at least a few churches actually believed this, that John was going to live until Jesus came back. So as John continued to get older, they got more and more excited because they thought Jesus was going to come back, which is a complete misunderstanding. But now think about it. A vain person would have enjoyed all this attention. A vain person wouldn't have minded this misunderstanding, maybe perhaps even begin to believe it themselves. But John wanted none of it. He made sure to clarify here in the second half of verse 23 that Jesus meant is not that I wasn't going to die until he comes back. What Jesus said was, if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? John is clarifying Jesus' point here is to rebuke Peter for his vanity, not to make a claim about his second coming in relation to John's lifespan. That's what John's clarifying in verse 23. You, you see a lack of vanity in John. In verses 24 and 25, let me just explain this real quick. After John claims to be the author of this book, which he had to do to authenticate the literature, or else people can't confirm the miracles and the events that he claimed to happen here. By implicating himself, he's saying it did really happen. Check with those people. Tell them I mentioned them. <laughs> he's, he's telling them it happened. His death and resurrection, it happened. I'm going to implicate myself. He needed to do that. But after he did that, he went straight back to Jesus in verse 25. <laughs> it, it's as if he couldn't stomach ending the book talking about himself. He had to bring it back to Jesus. D.A. Carson, a, commentary, uh, a commentator on the book of John, wrote about verse 25. It is as if John identifies himself but is not content to keep the focus on him. He had to close by referring back to Jesus. So friends, whatever life and gospel ministry Jesus has for you, whether that's preaching the gospel week in or week out, whether that's sharing the gospel to coworkers, being a part of a servant team at church, participating in community groups or Bible studies, blessing other people with your thoughts there, building a gospel culture in your family as a mother or father. Perhaps you're called to do a few things that I just mentioned. Whatever he's called you to do, do not do it to impress him. Do it because you love him. And don't do it because you're trying to beat other people. Do it because you love them. That's the point here. So now the question is, how can we make that switch? What power is strong enough that's going to cause us to take our eyes off ourselves and stop making our walks with God as a tool to glorify ourselves in front of God and others, but rather as a way to glorify God and love others? Well, last point, a beloved gospel servant. I want to point us back to how Jesus first addresses Peter here. By the way, this is the last conversation John records Jesus having with Peter, okay? And here Jesus calls Peter with what name? Verse 15, Simon, son of John. Now that's interesting because this is the same exact way that Jesus addresses Peter when he first met Peter in chapter 1, verse 42. Before Peter had done anything wrong in front of Jesus, before Peter denied Jesus three times, before Peter acted vainly in front of Jesus, before all of his mistakes, Jesus addresses Peter in chapter 1 as Simon, son of John. And now in the very last conversation Jesus is having with Peter in the book of John, after Peter has sinned, after Peter has denied Jesus three times, after Peter has showed Jesus the absolute worst side of him, Jesus comes to him again, and what does he say? Simon, son of John, come, follow me. The same exact address, the same exact call. Think about what this means. 
What is Jesus trying to tell Peter here? Jesus is telling Peter, remember when I first called you? I still love you now. I love you now like I loved you in the beginning. Even after all your failures, even after all your sin, even after you denied me, my love for you and the call I have for your life has not changed. Jesus embraces Peter in the last chapter of the story after everything he did, as if Peter had done nothing wrong, as if his faults are wiped clean. But why? How can God turn his face away from Peter's sins and iniquities like that? Well, because it was turned to the cross. On the cross, Jesus absorbed all of Peter's sins unto himself. On the cross, Jesus drank every drop of wrath that Peter deserved for his sin, his awful sin. A powerful God humbled himself to die on the cross as a guilty criminal so that weak and vain Peter, us, would be saved and be counted as innocent. Jesus didn't ignore Peter's sin. He brought it to full view through the charcoal fire in front of everyone else. You're guilty, he says. But instead of condemning him, he embraced him. Not because he shrugged his sin under the carpet, but because he himself took the consequences of Peter's sins when he died on that cross. You want to experience a level of intimacy with Christ and find him to be more precious than life itself? then you got to come to realize you are not as spiritually lofty as you think you are. you got to get there. We're not. This passage is saying if we don't see that, that means we don't know ourselves that well yet. Embrace the fact that your spirituality will never impress God. And until you realize that, until you realize that your inclusion into God's kingdom is not based on how impressive you are, but based on God's immense love for you, who took the punishment you deserved upon himself on that cross, until you realize that, you'll never be able to rest. You'll be stuck being a poor player that jumps and shouts upon the mere hour he has on this stage called earth, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. You'll be stuck trying to impress God instead of loving Him and worshiping Him. You'll be stuck enviously comparing yourself with others instead of loving and serving Him. I pray that the message of the cross that we've studied in the book of John this past year and a half would lure your heart and eyes away from yourselves unto Him. So much so to where you can say what an old German missionary once said, I'm content to preach the gospel, to die, and to be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. Because it's not about you or me. It's about his glory. Worry about that. You follow me. Do you love him, church? Do you love him for what he's done for you? If you do, then spend the mere hour you have on this stage called earth loving him back by ministering his gospel to his people driven by his love to build up his church for the sake of his glory.
Let's pray. Father, forgive us that even our greatest acts of service we have used to be a way to impress you. We have used to be a way to perform on stage and, and as if to look at ourselves and, and, and show you and the world how impressive we are. Religiosity that is not based on gospel mercy will always do work to impress and earn. But religious obedience that is based on gospel work that says you do not perform to be accepted, but yet you are accepted, that's why you perform. That's the only way, that's the only order in which I can finally stop making my love for you and my, my religious obediences as a way to impress or earn spiritual points. But to say, I will follow you, the one who died for me and has freed me from my sin. Father, help this truth through the Gospel of John in which you proclaimed over and over again that you love us. And now turn back the question to us, do we love you? Let the, gospel in this, in, in, let the good news in the Gospel of John lure our hearts to that. Let us stop working to impress and start worshiping and loving you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.